From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's new monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and to our patients. In the midst of COVID-19 and with flu season quickly approaching, we're kicking off our presence in the podcast scene with a discussion on infectious disease. This episode is part two of that conversation with nurse practitioners, Dr. Ruth Carrico and Dr. Hudson Garrett. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, now is a good time to go back and get caught up. As always, remember to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues as we'll be releasing new and unique episodes each month. Now, let's jump right back into that conversation. Please welcome back Dr. Carrico and Dr. Garrett. So, Dr. Garrett, what are some of the best ways for nurse practitioners to lead in the fight against these healthcare-associated infections? It really first starts with an awareness, an awareness and a level of commitment. And I think every nurse practitioner is 100% committed to providing high quality, safe patient care. Um, And part of that includes being aware of some of the common risk. Uh, One of the areas that I I greatly enjoy listening to Ruth talk about is safe injection practices. Um, Not only does she have an exceptional knowledge of vaccines, but she focuses that in and sort of correlates it with the vaccine is only as good as it's actually administered safely. And so I think we need to think about it in the context of what can we learn from COVID. Um, Part of that is leadership. We need to, as nurse practitioners, make sure we are leading our our, our colleagues, whether it's medical assistants, other nurses, physicians that we might work with, to say, what are we going to do to make sure that every single patient has a safe encounter with us? Um, That basic hand hygiene. I have zero problem walking up to a colleague. I don't care if it was the Pope himself and saying, wash your hands. Right. We cannot afford um, to to wait or report them anonymously or any of those types of things. It's really all about peer accountability with the sole intention of ensuring safety of our patients as well as ourselves. Um, So I think it really starts there. And then as we look at accountability, what can we do to incentivize good behavior? Um, I am not a fan of of doing bonuses to wash your hands. There's many places that I, I'm aware of that do that. That's part of their bonus. And, and I, I really feel very strongly ethically that as a healthcare provider, our responsibility is to ensure the patient is safe, period. Right? I don't need a bonus. I don't need an incentive to do that. And so I think this is a great time for nurse practitioners to lead. Um, and I will say that there's some great resources available Um, free of charge from the CDC that focus on frontline providers. And I think that that is an excellent place for us to start. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned too that the need for like an organizing framework, you know, it's easy for us to talk about what should happen, but how do we help people? How do we help make this uh, um, occur? And you mentioned then the, the resources that are available on the CDC website. And for an NP who is saying, okay, I realize I need to instill infection control practices in not only my office, but in myself. I need to kind of have that that 
that journey. Help me get started on this journey. Where, where, what is my first step? So I would suggest that that um, the first place to go is look at the CDC website, and you can in the search engine type type in core practices. What are the core practices for infection prevention and control? And so, um, a a work group. There's a a a committee, a charter committee by the CDC called HICPAC, the Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee. And this committee is responsible for for development of national policy. So HICPAC, that committee, pulled together all of the basic recommendations that were covered in all of the current um, guidelines to say what is what are the themes that are the same throughout these guidelines and and from this is a a document that um, outlines these core practices and they're exactly what what Dr. Garrett and I have talked about today the need to perform hand hygiene the need to understand isolation practices the need to use select and use personal protective equipment patient education environmental disinfection um, leadership, the importance of, of leadership. There are about 10 or 12 or 13 of these core practices that would make it a great way for an NP to start to say, all right, let me get that and let me do an internal audit. Let me see how, how well I practice. And then let me see how well I enable others in my office to adhere with these very basic practices. None of them are rocket science. It's not anything that you need to have in it you know, a, a doctoral degree in infection control. Absolutely not. You need to have a basic understanding of, of patient care practices. And then, you know, if you have something where you just don't feel that confident, know where you can go um, for additional information. What about um, thinking about two different, and, I, and I'll sort of use the example, I don't personally have kids, but I have a dog that is my child. Um, uh, Mr. Flash That's is my, important. yeah, he's, he's my entire world. And when I get up in the morning, I always start with a proactive mentality, one that is not going to be rooted in reacting to every single fire. And normally by nine or nine 30 in the morning, of course, that has since changed and you're fighting fires. I, I think right now with COVID, especially as the most recent example, we are fighting a fire, a wildfire in infection control. And we have a, a sort of two choices, right? Do we react to that and or do we really move forward strategically? And as, as Dr. Carrico mentioned, sort of hardwire what we can do to prevent this type of reaction in the future. Um, and, and so when I think about PPE as an example, there's a triangle that's out there that really looks at sort of the hierarchy of controls, right? Things that we can do to either sustainably or more tact, you know, tactically, if you will, address things. And at the very bottom of that, that triangle is PPE, which is the least effective sort of tool that we have in that pyramid. But at the very top is things like elimination. And so when we think about vaccines, therapeutics, um, some of the critical care interventions, like not putting patients on vents and using high flow nasal cannula, right? These are all things that are sort of moving our evidence and our approach forward. But how do we hardwire those things in the future? And my advice is that we need to move beyond PPE. We need to make sure as a profession, we are standing ready, educated, willing, and able to, to fight this fight. And it needs to start with protection of our healthcare workforce um, and ensuring that all of those things are taking place. And so as nurse practitioners, as uh, leaders in healthcare and advocates for um, 
uh, for our patients. What would you say are the top three things that we should be doing to start out with on a daily basis to help monitor our own infection control practices? I think it always, to me, starts with let's do an, a self-evaluation. And and everybody always thinks that they're great. You know, we all think that we're perfect in, in our practice. But it's nice to have some way to do some reflective um, evaluation. So it may be a matter of asking, you know, a colleague, I, I need you to tell me, of all we practice together, how well do you think I do ABC? Or you may be able to know yourself that, well, really, I've never made this very much of a focus. So that kind of self-assessment. Second is to know what, what is then the, what is best practice? So I go back to these, the CDC core practices. That represents best practice in infection control. And be able to see where do I feel like my strengths and weaknesses are? And then develop then a personal plan of, of growth. That's, you know, one of the benefits of having continuing education for nurse practitioners. It, it enables us then to identify areas of weakness or areas where we know it may not be a weakness, but our strength isn't strong enough. Uh, that it helps us then identify how we can improve. Because as Hudson said, I'm, I am completely in agreement that I have never met an NP that wanted to harm their patients. I've only met NPs that want to help their patients. So this is a way to help them by ensuring your own safety, but also making sure that you're not part of the transmission problem. So self-assessment, identification of those best practice approaches, and then having a plan for how you're going to fill your gaps. Well, I, I tell you one thing that I, I think AANP does tremendously well is sort of their commitment to advancing the profession and also serving as a policy voice. And the NP right now has so much of an opportunity to be, you know, forefront and center in saying, not only are we here to care for you, but we're also here to educate you. And, and really, you know, it may be an opportunity to get in front of the news media as an example and just do a short segment, right? Everybody is, is watching TVs right now because they're bored. They're at home. They're not necessarily back in an office. And that's a very unique opportunity for those nurse practitioners to actually get out and, and really be that voice of reason to dispel some of the myths that are out there in the news media and also help focus um, their local communities with specific resources that are available. I agree completely that I'm thinking now, you know, we're at the, the time of year now, we are getting ready to enter flu season. And so it's been interesting to me that we're going to be pushing influenza vaccine into the, the general public. We're going to try to get, you know, if, if you look at all the data, no matter how good of a job we do, we still never get beyond that about 60%, you know, the total uh, population. So, you know, the, the definition of insanity is we do the same thing over and over again, and we think that, you know, magically something else will happen. Well, what is it that we need to do differently then to ensure our patients are vaccinated? Um, that's going to be, again, our dry run for how we convince our patients, the population, that when we have a COVID-19 vaccine, that they need to accept that. And nurses, I think that we need to recognize that nurses have this incredible power with our patients. If we do not promote immunization, the public is going to hear our silence just as loudly as they will hear our voice. So if we are not prepared with the knowledge of how, how illnesses are transmitted and what we can do for both primary and secondary prevention, then I feel like it's going to be on us that if the public is not able and willing, 
It's because we did not uh, take that leadership approach that they depend on. Remember, they they depend on us. They keep saying we are the voice for best practice. Um, how, how are we going to be able to accept um, the outcomes if we have not maximized our opportunity and our responsibility? Well, you're right. And, you know, vaccine hesitancy is is already a problem um, before COVID happened. And so as nurses, nurse practitioners, as, as leaders in healthcare, um, I think that it's so important that we ourselves, first of all, understand the importance of getting the the, the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine. Um, and then lead by example. Let's uh, let's take that vaccine. Um, I, I myself signed up for one of the, the vaccine clinical trials, and I hope I get selected because I think it's so important to um, uh, to get the vaccine and do my part to help prevent the spread of COVID. Um, but, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the flu vaccine and and flu season and what what I want to know is you know with flu season coming up what how should we be setting up our practices now going forward to I guess uh, prepare ourselves to take uh, and and prevent the spread of infection between well patients and sick patients should we be doing anything different now than we have been well I think there are a couple of of areas to focus on uh, first of all I think that we're going to continue to do this segregation of of the provider from the patient through like telemedicine or any of those types of, of, of approaches where are there issues that we can handle where we where we don't require the face-to-face uh, interaction but uh, when it comes time for influenza immunization it's really hard to do that without some some face-to-face right so we're going to have to have a way yeah you know um, at least at, at present so we're going to have to think about how have we traditionally provided vaccine? Now, when I go to the the grocery store to pick up my prescriptions, right now there's crime scene tape, literally, in front of the waiting area (laughs) in the pharmacy. So that's letting me know that the pharmacies are not yet ready uh, to start providing vaccine. And, you know, if you if you have those little dots on the floor that are six feet apart, there's not very many people you're going to you're going to have waiting in line. And we are not going to have those that are our aging adults. They're not going to wait in line for their flu vaccine. So, you know, right now I'm seeing this as not the the um, opportunity. Uh, it's interesting. I just um, uh, provided some uh, uh, we had some webinars um, because in Louisville, we did the first drive through flu vaccine clinic in, in 1994. So we've been doing this for years and years and years where people stay in their car. So I'm looking at this as, you know, there is no better isolation unit than having somebody in their own car. Is it right? They've got their family, you know, their little bubble. They're driving up. We're vaccinating them and, you know, and they're gone. So we're going to have to do these very non-traditional types of approaches for uh, for vaccination. But at the same time, this is a real opportunity for NPs to understand the different types of flu vaccines because, you know, we've got some that are designed to provide impact, different levels of impact. So, for example, we've got vaccines, either high dose or the adjuvanted vaccine that is for those 65 and older as our immune systems, you know, begin to, to falter a bit. Or now we have vaccines for people who have true anaphylactic reaction to egg. So know your patients, you know, and and provide that full spectrum of vaccine. And then we need to be expert in when do we need to provide antivirals, that we need to not be afraid of antivirals. We've got, you know, a couple of really good ones. We've got one right now that is that is really good, one, one dose. Um, and so we need to not be afraid of 
of providing antivirals if we are concerned about influenza because we're going to have this period of time where we have flu and we have COVID. Both of them are very similar in their presentation. Both are respiratory in nature. Both present with that fever and, and body aches for those that are, are symptomatic, but very difficult to discern uh, the difference. And, you know, people will say, oh, no, that, that loss of sense and smell, that's it. Well, I have to say in the past, I've had patients with influenza that complained of the same thing. I just didn't recognize it as, as something that I needed to be paying more attention to. That's certainly been a learning thing for me. But as we look at that, it's like, you know, okay, what can I take off the table? And I'll tell my patients, I can give you a flu shot. It's not going to prevent COVID. But if I give you a flu shot, it may keep you from getting the flu or seriously ill with the flu, which may be beneficial to you because if you get COVID also, if you go into that disease without your full uh, body's ability to respond immunologically, uh, and your lungs are un, un, uh, impacted by influenza. And we know that, you know, flu is affects everybody's system. But I want you to go into, into COVID healthy um, so that you might not be one of those people that have to be on a ventilator or, or don't survive the disease. So it's not that, that the flu shot prevents COVID. It just may keep you from being, you know, entering that period of frailty or that period of, of what we used to call it, you know, they lost their reserve uh, it may keep that from happening, and therefore you might survive that illness. So as NPs, we need to recognize that, you know, vaccine is second only to clean water in terms of its public health importance. And so there shouldn't be a vaccine. If there is like an arm that is exposed, we should be looking for a vaccine to put in it. You know, we should be thinking every patient uh, has at every stage throughout their life, there is a vaccine that is targeted for that patient and probably that age range. It's our, D, our job to uh, figure out how we make that happen and how, again, we hardwire that practice into our process so every patient has equal opportunity for best practice preventive care. Exactly. And I think it's so important the way we um, – I, I did a um, – uh, webinar last week and and somebody was another colleague was talking about the way we communicate the the need for a vaccine to our patients when they come in and, and I said you know every patient encounter should be an opportunity to get them caught up on every vaccine that they need we should never use have a missed opportunity but especially during flu season it's it's not are you going to get your flu shot today it's you're getting your flu shot today right or we're going to give you your flu shot um, it's about how we communicate that to our patients and and there may not be a next time so um, uh, not I'll get it next time because we just don't know the way these the viruses are right now we just need to take every opportunity and in, in my opinion um, Dr. Garrett what are your thoughts on that I, I mean I would agree and I, I, I think another aspect of this conversation is to treat the patient not the diagnostic and I, I sort of go back to the you know the first time any of us ever took ACLS training and you know, the the rogue instructor would make sure that a lead fell off and simulate a systole. And they were testing to see if we trace that lead back to the patient's chest to, to truly determine if that patient was asystolic. And, you know, if you have a patient in front of you that is presenting as COVID and it looks and smells like COVID, some of these tests that we may have access to, especially the rapid diagnostics, may not be 100 percent accurate. And so it's important to know any of the methodologies that we're using 
Um, I know Ruth, for example, has access to a lab with PCR and she can get a very accurate result within three hours, but that's not always what we have access to. And so it's it really important to not withhold treatment, whether it's flu or COVID or anything. Um, if we have a patient that's presenting symptomatic, um, just because our laboratory result may tell us something different if it's not 100% accurate. And I think that's critically important to make sure that that patient education goes with that conversation. So let's talk about, you mentioned, um, you know, treating the patient with COVID. Can we get into some of the, the therapeutics and, and how are we treating COVID now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting in my division, we'll have, um, you know, we'll have regular meetings and the, our division chief will say, okay, so as of today, if any one of us gets sick with COVID, how do you want to be treated? And I think it's interesting to ask that because there is no standard approach. You know, we have got, we probably have 50 different clinical trials that are going on about some various intervention um, at, at one of our, our sister uh, hospitals. Everybody is looking at this disease. We don't have appropriate therapies. You know, do we, do, do we use hydroxychloroquine? Do we use hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin? Do we use azithromycin alone? Well, now how about um, plasma? How about convalescent plasma? I'll get plasma from somebody that, that uh, I hope has antibodies and then I will infuse it uh, with, uh, uh, in an ill patient. Uh, what about remdesivir, our antiviral? Well, you know, all of those are still under study that right now we still have no standard approach for treatment. We have no standard vaccine yet for treatment. And we have no reason to trust the um, immunity tests that we are seeing, those immunity results. And I'd like to really make that point when we're talking about safety, that if we have had any NP or any healthcare worker who has been tested and the test says that you are immune to COVID, please don't use that uh, to act upon. Do not say, great, if we're out of respirators, I don't need one because I have immunity. Please do not trust that, that all of our information from all of that, like the Infectious Diseases Society of America and, and CDC are both saying, you can use those tests as a measure of what you are seeing in a population, but don't use it for individual diagnoses or decision-making. That even though we, you know, we are, this uh, a virus that's affecting the entire world, we still, there's so much about it, we still don't know. So what you're saying is antibodies do not equal immunity. Correct, correct. That when we have antibodies, you, you know, there are certain things that you think, first of all, are they protective antibodies? Do I have enough of the protective antibodies? And do those protective antibodies have any durability? That means are they going to last or are they going to promote immune uh, that memory, immune uh, memory? We don't know any of those answers yet with COVID. So an antibody test is just a simple, give you a little bit of a clue. But when people ask me, you know, what should I use in determining antibodies? I say, I have a Ouija board that I keep in my office. And I really think that that Ouija board or that, you know, magic eight ball is going to be just as, as predictive as our current tests. And that's the reality. And I, you know, I, I don't mean to insult any of the tests or any of the technology, but we're just not there yet. And so we need, uh, as providers, we need to recognize the limitations of a test, but this is a disease we've been struggling with now for eight months. 
Look at what we have developed in eight months. It's amazing. The whole world is focused on this one disease. So what is coming to market uh, changes on a daily basis, but we're still not quite there yet. Well, I think we need to be very clear, though, Ruth, that you do not prescribe your antibiotics using the Ouija board as your guide. <laughs> not usually. You're right. Not usually. So, <laughs> so, it, but it's important for us to understand that that as healthcare providers, as as our staff may look up to us for guidance. Anybody that's been infected in the past, especially healthcare workers, we all still need to be practicing proper precautions and continue to wear the mask and um, face shields uh, or eyewear as we're caring for patients, even if we've already had COVID, because we just don't know uh, if the antibodies are actually protective. Right, right. Now, you know, we don't have evidence, at least uh, what, what I've been reading, we, we still don't have evidence of reinfection yet. Um, but again, you know, our surveillance hasn't been going on uh, for very long. So a lot of what we are learning is what uh, what we are are reading in the the literature from China and and countries outside the U.S. Um, but we we don't have the level of knowledge yet for us to make not only a reasonable decision but a safe decision. And I think that you know we go back to you know the critical nature of our healthcare providers. We already don't have enough healthcare providers, and we've lost thousands to this um, to this uh, virus already. Um, we, we can't let that happen. We can't let another healthcare worker become seriously ill because they were unable or just didn't have the knowledge about protecting themselves. We just can't let that happen. And that's so important. And what are some things that, um, as healthcare providers, what are some things that we can do ourselves? to keep um, ourselves as healthy as possible. But also, what is some guidance that we can tell our patients, maybe patients that that have COVID? What do we tell them to do when they are, go home and do self-care? Um, and, and are you treating some patients on the outpatient basis with some of the therapeutics? Well, you know, it's interesting because we are, we are just opening a post-COVID clinic. And I think we're seeing that all across the world, that we are realizing that this disease has some tremendous long-term problems. I, I was talking with a, um, a surgeon uh, not too long ago that was used to operating, I mean, he just a machine, you know, would, would operate all day, all night. Um, and now he's like, you know, I, I have trouble making it through, uh, you know, a, a, a normal day, an eight-hour day or a 10-hour day that there are long-term impacts from COVID in every body system. And so after people have this disease, whether it's a healthcare worker or not, in many of us, it can have prolonged and, and you know, potentially very damaging effects on, on our health. Those uh, that have diabetes, those that have underlying cardiac conditions, we're finding individuals that upon follow-up, they're saying, you know, gosh, I just... I don't have the stamina when, when we when you know when we do some cardiac uh, studies we find that they've they've got a, a, a greatly reduced ejection fraction you know this is very problematic that's why I said this is a ferocious virus nobody should want to have this and I know a lot of our our young people now you know to our typical very young people just developmentally we have that you know I'm I'm invincible you know this mm -hmm. can happen to me and you know we're seeing a lot of this now and in uh, in some of our very young um, young groups, uh, but it may not be impactful for them. Although I have to say, I've seen a couple of uh, of uh, young adults that have been on a ventilator too, 
uh, but more likely it's going to be uh, those of us that aren't so young anymore. Even when we're otherwise healthy, uh, we can still have not only an immediate impact in during our infected phase, but this prolonged impact. So I worry about a healthcare worker who becomes ill that now has uh, a greatly diminished uh, physical capacity after illness as they are trying to recover. And this is what we're seeing now uh, with um, patients that uh, we are sending home that are now trying to recover at home, uh, that it's a very different virus and a very different um, outcome. And I think it's gonna be interesting for us to look and see um, over time, uh, how are people one year later? You know, we've done a lot of pneumonia studies that, that we found people that are severely ill, that are hospitalized with pneumonia. We were shocked in some of our studies that, you know, we have like 30% of the people who go home after having a pneumonia requiring intensive care. About 30% of those people are no longer alive after a year. That was wow. shocking to me. Um, we're going to see the same thing and probably greater with COVID-19. Uh, so, you know, the best thing is, you know, if you don't want to deal with the outcomes, let's not get the infection. And so how do we make that happen? Not only in our healthcare workers, but in our communities. Well, and I would say the other thing beyond the physical ramifications that concern me are sort of the emotional um, ramifications and, and really sort of this upcoming PTSD Having talked to several colleagues that have either lost friends or colleagues or close family members, uh, my own sister-in-law had COVID and I was actually on the phone with her when she had to be transported via EMS. And, you know, that really made me pause as a person and say, oh my gosh, this is my own family member. It is very different when it becomes personal. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that resiliency factor that we learned from the use of PPE with Ebola is really critical to apply here and say that we're not as, as healthcare providers built to wear PPE for 12 hour shifts. That's just not what we're meant to do. Um, and so those frequent breaks, and it's very similar to the approach that TSA uses when they, they rotate their personnel. And while it's very frustrating for us as flyers, when you are that next one in line and they say change or rotate, um, we need to have that same mentality in healthcare so that we are rotating ourselves to keep ourselves mentally fresh so that we're fresh for that next patient but also that we're able to maintain our own safety. And so my big ask is to reach out to your, your colleagues, talk to people that you haven't talked to in a while. Um, I frequently have counseling sessions with Ruth because it just makes me feel better to just talk to her. Um, because when you don't know what the other person is going through, it's very hard to relate to that. But those of us, you know, whether it's an NP, a physician, a nurse, a CMA, we all have a perspective. And, and I think that we all wanna stick together and make sure we check in. I think that's really critically important right now. There's a big um, a big initiative uh, going on now that it goes by several different names, but the one that sticks with me the most is Nurses Helping Nurses. And that is, you know, that that outreach to say we are realizing the, the, the uh, anxiety and depression that is present, that COVID really, the impact on that, on the healthcare workers is one of two layers. That first layer is is taking care of these patients and the concern about PPE and the concern about, you know, am I, what is the moral distress involved if I've got to make decisions about who gets that ventilator or can I spend enough time with my patient or, you know, the, the provider that is trying to direct all of these activities. And then the second layer is if that healthcare worker becomes ill themselves. And so they're seeing this now, all of us are seeing the impact in our patients 
and we don't want it. So many are very frightened and that it is exacerbating any underlying issues, whether it's just anxiety, stress, anxiety, depression. It's promoting then a, a burnout. Uh, we know that it's probably promoting alcohol use, perhaps other uh, prescription or non-prescription drug use. But equally as important to me is what is this doing to the future of our profession? Um, do we have fewer individuals who are willing to come in and say, yep, I'm going to be that front line. I'm going to be in my office. I'm going to be seeing patients who need me. I'm going to be uh, providing care if you are a specialist or you are a, an NP working in a specialty area or a hospital. You're going to be right up there with those patients. What's happening then to those that are entering? Are they going to be willing? And I think that they will not be willing unless we are in charge of our profession and that we are taking those steps to ensure that individuals who enter the profession are well-educated and competent. And that means I don't just have the knowledge up here in my head. I've got, I can put it into action so that mm -hmm. I can provide safe care for everybody. So I think, Sophie, at the end of the day, we've got a lot of responsibilities, don't we? Um, as a nurse practitioner, as the most trusted profession, uh, we've got a lot to do and we have to take it seriously and really, for many of these things, we don't have a whole lot of time. Exactly. Um, and, and time is of the essence. So it's important for us to, as you said, um, educate our, our young providers as they're coming up and, and be sure that they, they've got the same dedica dedication and um, gumption in the heart to, to get it done. And and it takes a lot to put your own life, health, and safety on the line every day going to practice. Um as you said, many people are burning out, and and there is there are problems with people coping as well. So we have to uh, educate our young, educate the future, plan, have a good succession plan because none of us is getting any younger. Um, absolutely, but it's so key and so important right now. Well, I think you know Hudson, as he mentioned, you know we'll have a lot of these philosophic discussions about you know it's not you know what is life you know what about life, but. It's about the profession and what are our responsibilities. And I, I appreciate being able to, to bring those types of questions. What do you think about this situation? And I would stress that that is so important for every NP to have. Uh, not only a sounding board, but it's like a professional sounding board where you can say, these are my questions about general practice that how would you approach this? And to have those relationships so it's not somebody that's going to judge you because clearly, you know, in my practice, I have made wrong decisions and I have done things where I, I didn't have enough knowledge to do it or I should have known better. So I've got to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm relying on someone that can say, well, let me help you. You know, let me, I can point you toward this practice guideline or I can, you know, point you about this particular bit of information or just listen and maybe offer me some practice correction um, in a gentle way that doesn't make me, you know, feel like, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible healthcare provider, but instead I'm somebody that is in this stage of continuous learning um, because that's where all of us are. You know what, that I can only get so much from up to date. Sometimes I've got to have somebody that I can have a dialogue with. Um, so get to know uh, your colleagues that have specialty um, areas uh, so that you can call them and ask them questions and I guess, use the strength of these 300,000 of us that there are in the workforce. Uh, use the strength that we bring to the healthcare infrastructure 
you know, to build each other up. I think it was Hudson that told me, you know, remember, a, you know, a rising tide moves all ships. That when when one of us does better, we all do better. And and promoting that that type of collaborative learning and collaborative work. Well, yeah, that's what's so important. And, and mentorship is key. And at AANP, I'm so proud. We have our what we used to call our specialty practice groups, but now there there are communities. And we have uh, currently 17 specialty practice groups, and they range from um, psychology, dermatology, acute care, um, a wide range of topics. And um, I encourage my NP colleagues to join this, their specialty practice groups because these these are communities that are safe zones that um, we can we can pair everybody up and get NPs mentored, have NPs of varying experience join, and have these important conversations about uh, clinical topics that are important to them, but also just a way for NPs to connect in a safe area and communicate. Um, it's a great way to connect. So I encourage all my NP colleagues to join the, the specialty practice groups and uh, NP communities that are hosted on our AANP website. It's a great way to connect because you're right, Ruth, you do need to have um, somebody that you can call on, um, someone that can mentor you and and help guide you. Uh, I certainly dissuade people from using social media for their uh, clinical content or... Um, uh, yeah, that can be dangerous, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I, I uh, as COVID has, has uh, emerged and developed, you know, there have been so many questions about the healthcare environment. And, uh, you know, Hudson's got this wealth of information about, you know, the, the EPA and how the EPA works and how all these germicides work. And, you know, it seems like every day I've got somebody knocking on my door that's going to bring me the magic bullet that I need, um, that it's going to be, you know, something I can spray on or something I can paint on or, I, you know, a new product or whatever. And I think in our offices, we're going to be pushed by a lot of these technologies uh, that somebody's going to say, you know, you need this for your ventilation system or or didn't you read that article that somebody, you know, cultured COVID from the ventilation system? And I want to say, no, you need to you need to know how to read an article and understand the science so you can say, well, maybe this was some RNA that they discovered, but this was not, we don't have any evidence that was a live virus. And if so, you know, we all know you've got to have an inoculum, uh, an amount to make you sick. So don't be afraid to put what you know into practice to help you make some of these decisions. But I think that we're going to find that we've got some new areas of practice where we don't have a lot of expertise. So this is like wide open space uh, for NPs to get a hold of some of these intersections between practice, environment, um, microbiology, pharmacology, uh, the the HVAC system. I, you know, I never knew I, I needed to be an engineer. I just wanted to be a nurse, <laughs> you know, but I never knew I needed to be an engineer. But it's showing us that contemporary practice to really be good, you've got to have a very broad either set of broad sets of knowledge or you need to have a network of people that you can go to. And I think this is a vital area and, and goes back to right what you were mentioning, Sophia, about the practice groups, that if there are, are people that you can ask questions of and learn from, th this only helps This only helps everybody, uh, not just one person, but everybody. So I have to tell you all, um, 
and I haven't told anybody this before, when COVID started, my husband insisted on getting uh, UV lighting installed in our air conditioner ducts. Um, does that work? And I'm asking you because I haven't researched it. I just said, okay. I have it. You have it? I do. And it's kept you healthy, right? Uh, well, I can't, <laughs> I can't say that because, of course, evidence-based practice wouldn't allow me to make that correlation. But I actually purchased it um, to reduce allergens several years ago. Uh, there is a lot of data from the American Allergy Association and some of their clinical practice guidelines that it does reduce sort of those pollutants. Um, but there, there is, you know, to Ruth's point, I think anything can look positive if, if you really twist it enough. And, and so there are lots of different solutions now. So, for example, I, I have a favorite restaurant that I like to go to. Um, it's, it's literally my favorite place. Ruth has been with me. It's a, a great place. And the chef is probably of the highest caliber as it relates to cleanliness. And he called me and he said, what should I do for COVID? And I said, well, we're going to start with sort of an incremental approach. The first thing we're going to do is train your entire staff so that every server, every cook, every chef in your building knows what to do. You're going to do universal masking. You're going to focus on hand hygiene. You're going to check your guests before they come in and check your staff members. And sort of at the very, very end of that list would be to look at the HVAC system other than the, the regular things like maintenance. And so I would never discourage someone at doing some of those environmental additives as long as there was some evidence behind them. But I think one of the big things that Ruth and I have been focusing on in the last few weeks is that there are many technologies that have great marketing and that great marketing is not backed up in real science. And so having technologies that have been vetted by either the FDA or the EPA really provides that nurse practitioner or whoever it is, the healthcare consumer, with an added layer of confidence in the efficacy and safety of the data. Because what we don't want to do is I, I've heard people say, well, I'm just going to install UV in the corners of every room. Well, what are we going to do when we zap the patient or zap the healthcare worker? <laughs> so there's lots of things that we have to consider. Um, and, and it's a very fast moving target. And sometimes things that sound too good to be true most likely are. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I've been working with a group that says, you know, I, I want to put UV in all of my HVAC systems. And I'm like, well, you know, OK, that that if, if that's where you were, where you want to spend your money. But let's kind of walk through this process that, you know, you are putting this in in ductwork and you are are uh, sterilizing or you are reducing, drastically reducing the microbes in the air as long as they have time to be properly dosed. But then once that air is in the environment, it's mixed with the air that is already here. So I'm not sure what you're doing. Um, it, it sounds good for that air. Now, if I can have my desk and my chair right by that air that is coming directly after having come in contact with UV light, then that may be great. But I, I'm not. I'm, I'm down the hall. So I think, it, you know, it kind of goes back to we have to, you know, we, we have a brain for a reason. And this is one of those times where we've got to use it that we've got to think through the process and then be willing to ask questions and then realize that, you know, everybody's looking for that magic, that magic bullet. Um, but nothing is going to replace the, you know, cleaning, disinfection, and then that segregation of ill patients and kind of going back to, uh, to the basics. But, you know, we're going to be getting lots of technology now. So uh, getting a uh, getting ready for that, starting to do some basic reading, getting some, you know, groups together to talk because every office now is going to be, you know, should I have this in my office? Should I, you know, should I have dry hydrogen peroxide? Do I have, uh, you know, UV? Do I have UV wands? Do I have whatever? So it's a good time to 
to think about that as maybe an upcoming uh, uh, session uh, that's provided by AENP to help people figure out, you know, what is uh, infection control in the environment of care and, you know, what are the, the you know, technologies that are emerging. Think about, too, the antibiotics. You know, we want to have the right dose for the right patient, for the right organism. And the same is true here. Coronaviruses are extremely easy to inactivate in the environment. They're extremely easy to inactivate on your hands. So there are basic practices that we can do, and those should, those should really be our tier one interventions before, like Ruth said, that you spend any amount of money on doing some of these other things. And frankly, it will also help protect the NP workforce, which is so vital right now. Now more than ever, we need every single practitioner out there in front of patients because the need is so great. Absolutely. It sounds like I'm going to have to invite you both to come back because we've got a lot more that we could talk about here. Um, I appreciate you coming and spending time with us. Certainly the message is, is getting back to the basics, practicing good infection control, prevention is key. And and now more than ever with COVID-19, with flu season uh, right around the corner here, uh, protect ourselves, protect our patients and um, and wash those hands. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Garrett, Dr. Carrico, for joining me today on um, the Voice of the Nurse Practitioner. Um, I hope you come back and join us again. Oh, it was a delight. Thanks so much for the invitation. And I always love to uh, have these dialogues with Hudson. Uh, every time I, I talk with him, I go away learning something. So it's always a great experience. So thank you. And I, I leave knowing that there's much more I don't know that I need to learn from Ruth. So it's a mutual experience. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thomas, for inviting us in the AAP, AAP team. This is a, a great, I think, start for this uh, type of series that's so relevant and so timely for the MP community. What a great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode and gained some new insight into managing infectious diseases. Don't forget that you can learn more about multiple aspects of infectious disease and earn continuing education at the ongoing AANP Connect online conference. AANP Connect has more than 60 available sessions with the opportunity to earn more than 72 hours of continuing education. And with a dedicated networking forum, it's the next best thing to all being together at an in-person conference. Visit aanp.org forward slash AANP Connect to learn more about attending this online conference. If you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AANP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. Unite with more than 113,000 of your NP colleagues across the nation to amplify the voice of the nurse practitioner in the effort to remove barriers and secure full and direct access to NP services for patients everywhere. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm.